From New York, this is Democracy Now! Hamas responded tonight. We're reviewing that response now, uh, and I'll be discussing it with the government of Israel tomorrow. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and indeed essential. Hamas puts forward a deal to end Israel's assault on Gaza. The plan is a response to a U.S.-backed Israeli deal for a temporary ceasefire. We'll get the latest with former Israeli negotiator Daniel Levy. Then, Netanyahu's war on truth. From the immediate moment after the October 7th attacks, Israel has unleashed a sustained information warfare campaign to dehumanize Palestinians. And this campaign has included lies. It's flooded the zone with misinformation, unverified allegations. And Israel has gotten the White House to launder these lies. And the purpose was to justify the unjustifiable, a scorched earth campaign against the population of Gaza. We'll speak with investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill about Israel's propaganda campaign to dehumanize Palestinians. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. A federal appeals court has unanimously rejected Donald Trump's claim that he's immune from federal prosecution for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In its ruling, the three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit wrote, quote, We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. The judges went on to write, quote, Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes count. Trump has vowed to appeal the ruling, possibly to the Supreme Court. During oral arguments last month, Trump's legal team claimed the former president should have full immunity to do anything, even assassinate political opponents. In a chaotic day on Capitol Hill, the Republican effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas failed after Republicans fell one vote short. Democratic Congressmember Al Green cast the deciding vote while wearing a hospital gown. Green came to the hospital directly Green came to the Capitol directly from a hospital where he was recovering from a recent surgery. Republicans are vowing to hold another impeachment vote on Mayorkas, who they accuse of failing to uphold immigration laws at the U.S.-Mexico border. In a second setback for House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republicans also failed to pass a standalone bill to send $17.6 billion in military assistance to Israel. Meanwhile, in the Senate, a bipartisan $118 billion immigration and foreign aid bill appears to be dead after Republican lawmakers revolted against the very bill they had been pushing for. On Tuesday, President Biden accused Donald Trump of blowing up the plan, which included harsh new border measures as well as new military aid for Ukraine, Israel and allies in the Pacific. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't, even though it helps the the country, he's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. The ACLU has warned the bipartisan deal would have eviscerated longstanding asylum protections and forced the government to summarily expel people from the southern border without due process. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel as negotiations continue over a possible truce and hostage deal that could end Israel's assault on Gaza, at least temporarily. On Tuesday, Qatar said Hamas had given a, quote, positive response to a proposed deal, but President Biden described Hamas's response as over the top. In its counteroffer, Hamas proposed a three-phased ceasefire over 135 days where Hamas would release all hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Hamas is also calling for a permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza, demands Israel has so far opposed. As the negotiations continue, the New York Times is reporting Israel now believes a fifth of the hostages held in Gaza may already be dead. The paper cited a confidential Israeli assessment that estimated at least 30 of the remaining 136 hostages captured on October 7th have died. Meanwhile, the United Nations is urging Israel to halt plans for a ground invasion of the southern Gaza city of Rafah, warning it will lead to a, quote, large-scale loss of life. Some displaced Palestinians are living in cemeteries in Rafah. People were forced to come here to this safe place, which is the cemetery among the dead, which is better than living in residential areas where the houses could collapse over our heads. We come here to live among the dead because of fear and horror. I envy the dead people for their current situation. They are dead, but in fact they are alive with God, well provided for. I envy them because they are better than us now. We live every second in horror. Every minute passing we are in horror, pain, torture, suffering and confusion because we don't know when the war will end. It's a very painful situation. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz has revealed the Israeli military has begun investigating the actions of its own forces during the October 7th Hamas attack. Part of the probe is focused on Kibbutz Beri, where an Israeli brigadier general has admitted that he ordered an Israeli tank commander to fire on a home where Hamas fighters were holding Israelis hostage. Brigadier General Barak Haram told the New York Times that he'd ordered the tank commander to, quote, break in, even at the cost of civilian casualties. Only two Two of the 15 Israeli hostages survived. We'll have more on this story later in the show. The U.S. Department of Education has opened an investigation into Harvard University after a group of Muslim and Palestinian students filed a federal civil rights complaint alleging the school had failed to protect them from harassment and intimidation. In other education news, two students at Northwestern University in Illinois have been criminally charged after they published a mock version of the school's newspaper. The mock paper included a front-page article accusing Northwestern's administration of being complicit in the genocide of Palestinians. The Intercept reports that the students, who are both black, are being charged under a little-known statute written to prevent the Ku Klux Klan from distributing recruitment materials in newspapers. The students face up to a year in prison and a $2,500 fine. In election news, Nikki Haley lost the non-binding Republican presidential primary in Nevada Tuesday, even though Donald Trump was not even on the ballot. Over 60 percent of Republican primary voters in Nevada selected a box that said none of these candidates. About 30 percent of voters picked Haley, the former South Carolina governor who served as Trump's U.N. ambassador. On Thursday, Republicans in Nevada will also hold a caucus. Trump is competing in the caucus, but Haley is not. Meanwhile, Joe Biden easily won Nevada's Democratic primary with about 89 percent of the vote. 
In other political news, the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, has reportedly agreed to resign after coming under intense pressure from Donald Trump. McDaniel plans to step down after the South Carolina primary. Trump is reportedly pushing for Michael Watley, the chair of the North Carolina Republican Party, to become the new head of the RNC. Watley is a prominent election denier who endorsed Trump's false claims about the 2020 election being stolen. In California, at least nine people have died as the state continues to be pummeled with record-breaking rainfall from a deadly atmospheric river storm. Some areas of Southern California recorded over 13 inches of rain in recent days, triggering mass flooding and hundreds of mudslides. This is the actor and filmmaker Deborah Pewitt speaking in Studio City as a river of water flowed down the street. We are having these... You know, these record highs in the summertime and then these incredible storms that we've never had before that they're calling, you know, once every hundred year storms. And we've had two of them since August. So that's my belief is, of course, it's climate change. In Michigan, a jury has convicted Jennifer Crumbly of four counts of involuntary manslaughter for a deadly school shooting carried out by her 15-year-old son at Oxford High School in 2021. Prosecutors argued Crumbly had a duty to prevent her son from going on the rampage, which killed four students in what was Michigan's deadliest school shooting. This is Mark Keast, assistant prosecuting attorney in Oakland County, speaking during the trial. Jennifer Crumley didn't pull the trigger that day, but she is responsible for those deaths. These kids were gunned down inside Oxford High School with this gun. It's a six-hour, nine-millimeter handgun purchased four days before the shooting by James Crumley, Jennifer's husband and father of the school shooter. This was a purchase celebrated by Jennifer on Instagram. These are her words. This is her post. Mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present. My first time shooting a 9mm, I hit the bullseye. Jennifer Crumbly's husband is scheduled to go on trial in March. In Pakistan, at least 26 people have died after a pair of bombings in the province of Balochistan ahead of Thursday's general election. Both blasts targeted the electoral offices of candidates. In Senegal, more than 200 opposition politicians and protesters have been arrested in recent days after Senegalese President Macky Sall postponed this month's election. At least one private television channel has had their broadcasting license revoked after they aired footage of protests on Sunday. The government also shut down Internet access via mobile data. Opposition protesters have accused Saul of attempting to stage a coup by extending his term in office. Earlier this week, lawmakers voted to postpone the elections until December. Back in the United States, the former head of Honduras's national police pleaded guilty Tuesday to cocaine trafficking charges. Juan Carlos El Tigre Bonilla appeared in a New York City court just days before he was scheduled to go on trial with former Honduran president Juan Orlando Hernandez. Speculation is growing that Bonilla will now testify against Hernandez. The two were extradited to the United States in 2022. Hernandez were, was arrested in February 2022, less 
less than a month after his presidential term ended. He was a longtime U.S. ally who received backing during his entire eight-year term, despite mounting reports of serious human rights violations and accusations of corruption and involvement with drug smuggling. His brother, Juan Antonio Tony Hernandez, is currently serving a life prison sentence in the U.S. after being convicted in 2019 of smuggling cocaine. In Chile, the death toll from devastating wildfires has increased to over 120, while hundreds of people are still missing. Thousands of homes were charred and entire neighborhoods decimated after the blazes broke out last week in Chile's central coastal hills. The seaside cities of Viña del Mar and Valparaiso have been engulfed with smoke for days, and volunteers continue to search for survivors. These are the deadliest ever wildfires to hit Chile due to record heat. In more news from Chile, former President Sebastián Piñera died Tuesday in a helicopter crash. He first served from 2010 to 2014 and again from 2018 to 2022. Massive protests broke out against Piñera's government in 2019 due to rising inequality, high cost of living and privatization. He responded by unleashing Chile's police force and military, both of which were accused of severe human rights violations, including beating and torturing demonstrators. Funeral arrangements are being planned for Namibian President Hake. Hage Gengob, who died on Sunday at the age of 82. Gengob was a prominent anti-apartheid activist who became Namibia's first prime minister when the former German colony gained independence from apartheid South Africa in 1990. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa described Gengob as, quote, a towering veteran of Namibia's liberation from colonialism and apartheid. And in New York, beloved transgender advocate, author, and actor Cecilia Gentili has died. Gentili migrated from Argentina years ago and dedicated her life fighting for the rights of sex workers, LGBTQ, and immigrant communities. Gentili starred as Miss Orlando in the acclaimed television series Pose. Her debut memoir, Faltas, Letters to Everyone in My Hometown Who Isn't My Rapist, was released in 2022, detailing her life before leaving Argentina. Last year, she began performing in her autobiographical off-Broadway show called Red Inc. Gentili was also the founder of Trans Equity Consulting, an organization that supports trans women of color, sex workers, immigrants, and incarcerated people. A post on her Instagram said Tuesday, quote, Our beloved Cecilia Gentili passed away this morning to continue watching over us in spirit. Please be gentle with each other and love one another with ferocity. Gentili was 52 years old. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, negotiations are underway as Hamas puts forward a counterproposal to end Israel's assault on Gaza. We'll speak with former Israeli peace negotiator Daniel Levy. Stay with us. <laughs> پشت دشتا یه تلایی پشت سهرا های خالی خونه ماست اون بره آب اون بره موجای بیتا پشت جنگل های سرف 
توی خواب پشت اقیا نوس آبی پشت باقا یه گلابی اونور با خونی ما بای مرجان فرساد This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh in New York, joined by Amy Goodman. Hi, Amy. Hi, Nermeen. Welcome to all our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Hamas has put forward a detailed plan for a new ceasefire deal aimed at ending Israel's assault on Gaza. The plan is a response to a proposal drawn up two weeks ago by the U.S., Israel, Qatar, and Egypt. The Hamas counterproposal, which was introduced late Tuesday night, envisions three phases of 45 days each. In the first phase, Hamas would release all female Israeli hostages, males under 19, and elderly and sick people in exchange for Palestinian women and children held in Israeli jails. Israel would also withdraw from populated areas in Gaza, cease aerial operations, allow far more aid to enter, and permit Palestinians to return to their homes, including in northern Gaza. The second 45-day phase, to be negotiated during the first, would include the release of all remaining hostages, mostly soldiers, in exchange for more Palestinian prisoners, and Israel would complete its withdrawal from Gaza. In the third phase, the sides would exchange the remains of hostages and prisoners. President Biden commented on Hamas's counterproposal on Tuesday, calling it, quote, a little over the top. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the, uh, The, the, there's been a response from the opposition, but um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel overnight after meetings on Tuesday in Egypt and Qatar. He will meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Isaac Herzog, among others, to discuss Hamas's response to the proposed deal. Blinken will also meet Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas later today. As the negotiations continue, Israel's assault on Gaza is entering its fifth month. Over 27,500 Palestinians have been killed and nearly 67,000 wounded since October 7th, while the vast majority of Gaza's population have been driven from their homes, much of the territory has been destroyed or severely damaged, and a quarter of the population is facing starvation. For more on the ceasefire negotiations, we're joined by Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and a former Israeli peace negotiator under Prime Ministers Ehud Barak and Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, Daniel Levy, welcome to Democracy Now! If we could just begin with your assessment of the negotiations, how they've been proceeding uh, so far, and what you anticipate Israel's response might be to the counterproposal offered by Hamas. Well, we do now have a detailed position that has been put out in the public domain. You reference that. I think the, a crucial thing to say about this is that what Hamas have said is that it's not that we can do phase one, move on to phase two, move on to phase three, is that there has to be an agreement up front that this is going to deliver 
a final ceasefire. Now, we've heard not detailed counterproposals from the Israeli side. We don't have that. What we have heard is Prime Minister Netanyahu making clear that he will not accept a permanent ceasefire. He will not redeploy his troops out of Gaza and has also been circumspect on what kind of Israeli prisoner exchange would be on the table. That suggests that the parties are still really quite some distance apart, that there's an element of blame game not being uh, attributed with blame. And there's an element of where more could one take the negotiations? I think, you know what I mean, that will be partly dependent on three factors. Firstly, the balance of forces on the battlefield. This has not gone as Israel had anticipated, as Israel had hoped, as Israel's maximalist war game war claims uh, had set out. Israel is, yes, operating Gaza. We've seen the terrible destruction. You've gone through that, the level of, of death, of civilian death, of child death, the disease and starvation now. But we are not seeing Hamas's resilience um, wane. So on the battlefield, that, that is still something of a stalemate. The second vector is internal pressure. Now, there is internal pressure inside Israel from the families. There are some inside the war cabinet who have said this needs to change direction. The third vector, and here's where we get to the Blinken visit, you know I mean? The third vector is what are the external dynamics of pressure? We have had what South Africa has done at the International Court of Justice, which I think was very significant. What we do not have is, Amer is an American Secretary of State empowered to use leverage to put on the table a disincentive, a cost structure for Israel to continue this. And therefore, I think we're stuck. What you instead have, curiously perhaps, is an attempt to almost do an end run and to tie in post-war plans with the ceasefire. Now, that could be a good thing, right? This didn't begin on October 7th, four months ago today. There are root causes that absolutely need to be addressed if Palestinians or Israelis are going to have to have security in the future. But Blinken seems to be putting on the table some pretty magical thinking, which has partly been set out in articles by Tom Friedman and David Ignatius, and I think are going to cause more problems. And, and maybe that's something we can touch on. And Daniel Levy, if you can talk about the role of Qatar the role of Egypt in these negotiations. Right now, Blinken is meeting with Netanyahu. Um, and what ideally, and you as a negotiator know the significance of negotiations, uh, Blinken needs to say to Netanyahu, while Blinken has continually said he's heartbroken and gut-wrenched over the fatalities in Gaza what he's continued to do is provide weapons to Israel and unrun around Congress twice to ensure artillery shells go to them. Um, so whatever he feels or says he is um, feeling, the significance of what the U.S. is doing in shoring up Netanyahu. That is crucial, Amy, because... Some may have heard the president say, well, it seems like the Hamas position is a, a little too much. Uh, some may consider the provision of 2000 pound bombs uh, by the U.S. to Israel after everything we've seen a little too much. Some may consider that when there is a plausible case for genocide at the International Court of Justice and you're ignoring those provisional measures a little too much. So what we have is a 
Qatari and Egyptian party, because there are no direct negotiations with Israel between Israel and Hamas. So you have the mediators from the region who are talking to Hamas. They can try and lean on Hamas. If Hamas does not feel that it has to uh, concede further, it will not. The question is, as you have noted, will the U.S. lean on Israel? Now, it seems that rather than coming and saying there's a cost for you to do this, what Secretary Blinken is attempting to do is say, you know what, I'm going to reward you. You know what I've got in my back pocket? I've got Saudi normalization. Now, the Saudis have poured some cold water on this in a statement that they issued overnight to contradict something that um, spokesman Kirby said. But Blinken is hoping that this could somehow push a deal over the line. I think this demonstrates, first of all, naivety. We've had normalization with the UAE and others in the past, and it only encourages Israeli extremism. It's, it's layers and layers of make-believe. The idea that you can have Western-appointed Palestinian technocratic leaders somehow run the Palestinian side with no credibility on their own people. These limited measures against Israeli settlers that the administration took, when the problem is not a few bad apples. The problem is the state structure of occupation and oppression. So it seems that there's another effort here by the administration to say, we can stop ethnic cleansing, we can stop this displacement, but, and here's the, one of the big problems, I think, what is on offer is not Palestinian statehood. It's not that anyone is saying Israel will withdraw, the army will be out, you'll have a recognition of a viable state that's actually going to exist with Jerusalem as its capital. Then we can deal with refugees and other things. What is apparently on offer is a little bit of verbiage in exchange for Saudi normalization. And what, what this is really, Amy, is this, an, this is an attempt to re-entrench, to refreeze the existence of a Bantu stand and the use of partition as a tool of violence in ensuring a future of apartheid. And I think that's a pernicious thing to offer Palestinians. You can either have ethnic cleansing or apartheid, because what is not on the table is justice or genuine peace. And to be quite honest, if the U.S. administration wants to make a deal with the Saudis to export more arms, maybe have some companies do well over a civilian energy program, as a geopolitical move to try and slow down de-dollarization, don't pretend that this is a peace move to end the horrors in Gaza, because this is a geopolitical maneuver, not a genocide avoidance maneuver. And what about the role of Qatar in Egypt in this and how you feel this is going to play out in the midst of these so-called negotiations that are coming close to yet another? Uh, Blinken won't use the word ceasefire. He talks about pause. The threat of a ground invasion of Rafah, where hundreds of Palestinians, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled. What something like two million Palestinians are there just on the tip of Gaza and the Egyptian border. Well, as you say, Palestinians have been moved from one location to the other. And then every time the area they're told to move to, that becomes bombed. That's the story with Khan Yunis today. That's the story with Rafa um, tomorrow. Qatar, K 
can and has, and we saw the first pause and we saw releases. So this magical thinking that there's a non-negotiated path to saving the hostages. Unfortunately, those numbers are smaller than what was previously talked about. There is a negotiated path. But Qatar can, and Egypt can only work with what they have from the Israeli side. And if they have something that is woefully falling short of what is needed, because on the Israeli side, there is division. There's an unwillingness to make those hard decisions. Um, they are not going to be able to deliver on the back of that. Now, Egypt has another concern, which is that Israel still hopes and holds a plan for the mass displacement of Palestinians in Gaza into Egypt, given the horrendous conditions there. And if Israel takes over the rougher border crossing with Egypt, I think that exacerbates those concerns. You've had uh, Egypt make statements to the effect of that not being something that can happen as far as they are concerned. So you have the role of the mediators. Perhaps what Netanyahu is hoping is that he can get some of the hostages out because there is pressure without having to concede on the other issues. So perhaps they're hoping that phase one happens. I don't think it's going to happen uh, at that low cost. What the, the, what the Americans seem to hope is that they can drive a wedge between Netanyahu, Smotrich and Ben Gavir. And that Netanyahu, if faced with the opportunity, for instance, of a deal with Saudi Arabia, will not be able to stand down public pressure. I think this is more um, American naivety, uh, American failure to learn the lessons of history, because I think Netanyahu will turn around and say, I can get a better deal Maybe not now, maybe not with this president. But look, I got those Abraham Accord deals while giving nothing and I'll get something this time. So, again, what does it boil down to? It boils down to whether this administration, this president, this president actually wants to create circumstances in which Israel has hard choices to make, in which genuine American leverage is on the table, if not will continue to depend on battlefield dynamics, which aren't going well, on Israeli internal pressure, and we risk further regional escalation, which has gone up again in the last weeks. And America is apparently willing to risk being further entangled yet again in Middle East wars because it is unwilling to stare down an Israeli leader who has his own political survival at stake, perhaps that's true of the president here as well, and who is insistent on maintaining his apartheid regime. Well, Daniel Levy, I want to go back to a comment that you made uh, about Saudi Arabia, the normalization of ties between Saudi and, and uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel being one of the principal incentives uh, being offered. But there are also questions being raised, which I'm sure the Saudis are aware of, uh, that the U.S. promises to Saudi Arabia are not likely to be accepted by Congress, uh, even if this goes ahead, including a defense pact as well as uh, technical support uh, to Saudi Arabia to develop a nuclear power industry. And it's also also unclear, as has been reported, uh, that Netanyahu sees Saudi normalization and the continuation of U.S. support as essential to his survival. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, do you think that's true, uh, since it does seem clear that his principal objective, to Netanyahu's, uh, for reasons that we've covered on the show, uh, his principal aim is to remain in power? Prime Minister Netanyahu is a leader who now has the legacy of October 7th hanging over him. 
facts in court facing criminal charges. Does he, can you still hear me? Go ahead, Daniel. Go ahead, Daniel. Thank you. Um, he is therefore making a daily calculation of how does he keep this going. Now, right now, it is more important for him to maintain his coalition rather than to go on this journey to Saudi normalization, something he wants, but not at any cost. And as I have said, he can turn around to the Israeli public and say, don't worry, the Americans want me to give up things which are too much for Israel to give up. My my parliamentary opponents are willing to give them up, but not me. I will get um, a better deal. So that's on the, the Netanyahu side of things. He he does not feel that he is in a corner yet. On the Saudi side of things, the, the, the Saudis, of course, why not? If you're in their position, say, let's see what more we can get from the Americans. Let's see what more they will put on the table. If there's enough on the table, maybe there are circumstances under which we will do this. And if not, at least we've already now got an American offer which we can use in the future and see where um, where else this can go. So what you have is an Israeli side quite effective at playing the administration, a Saudi side quite effective at playing the administration. And, you know, I don't take joy in saying this, but a very weak, very ineffective and self-harming government in Washington, D.C., Daniel Levy, Daniel I want to go Levy. back to something you said. You referred to an apartheid regime uh, being the Israeli government. You also talked about the Bantustan. Now, this is very significant given who you are, a uh, former Israeli peace negotiator under Prime Minister Zahud Barak, as well as Yitzhak Rabin, will remind people, was killed by a Jewish extremist who was assassinated. Um Explain what you mean by Bantustan um, and then talk about where you see this going and how painful it was to see President Biden yesterday. He couldn't remember the name Hamas um, really cognitively stumbling there, uh, but then saying Hamas's proposal is over the top. Look, on that latter point. I can't comment on, oh, I can comment, but I have no uh, special insight into the decision-making that uh, has a reality in this country um, where where that is the nature of the candidate being put forward. Um, I, I imagine, and my assessment would be, that that community of people, a sizable community, who see a significant massive importance in an outcome in the election in which Donald Trump does not return to the White House, um, I imagine they would see it as crucial that everything be done so that the alternative to Trump is a president who is someone as broad a coalition as possible can vote for certainly amongst those who previously voted for him. And therefore, I hope that those other groups who have such a strong interest in that Trump outcome not materializing 
would be pressuring the administration to change its policy on aiding, abetting and arming what the highest court in the world, the International Court of Justice, has plausibly said is a genocide. Rather than beating up on people in Michigan and elsewhere who say, I can't, I cannot vote for this man. So that's on the American side. In terms of what I have witnessed as, as a previously as a negotiator and the, the, the um, assessment I made with regard to the apartheid reality and the offer of a Bantustan. There was a two state option, which was an incredibly good deal for Israel. Not the partition plan that the UN voted on in 1947 to allow this Jewish state entity to come into existence. That partition plan voted on by a UN with, with virtually none of the decolonized states, right? You didn't have an African, Asian, global south, as we would call it, presence at the UN then to create the Jewish state. That gave uh, Israel about 53, 54%. Today, Israel has 78%. That was the basis on which the two-state negotiation took place. Rather than grabbing this with both arms and saying, my goodness, how do we... How do we go the extra mile so that we can get this remarkable deal? Rather than going there, the Israeli negotiating position over time, and I don't know what would have happened had Rabin not been assassinated, but the negotiating position on the Israeli side, when the Palestinian leadership, the PLO was ready to accept that, was to keep draining this Palestinian state of meaning, not only would there be nothing on the refugees, not only would there be no truth and reconciliation, there would have to be an end of all claims. There would be demilitarization. There would be islands of Israeli settlement in this state. Those islands kept getting bigger with every iteration of the map. Nickel and diming on Jerusalem, on border crossings, on everything. What we are left with, a quarter of a century after the deadline for completing those negotiations, is something that factually, legally, accurately resembles the Bantu stands that existed under that apartheid regime. There's no perfect symmetry, but the legal definition of apartheid, I think, has been strongly proven in the reports by the human rights organizations. And so what the Americans, and I think this is the difference between Biden and, and Bibi, if you like. Bibi is saying, I'm not offering them a state. I'm offering them a Bantustan. And Biden is saying, God damn it, man, can't you just call it a state? We all know that it's not a state. Because what you have there is partition being used to create these tiny islands of Palestinian limited self-governance so that the envelope of control is an Israeli regime which makes sure that Palestinians cannot have equal rights, cannot have security, cannot have a future. And that is always going to be a recipe for insecurity and an explosion, whether that's one that impacts Israelis or one that impacts Palestinians. And to try and come out of this crisis and say the solution is to go back to squeezing things into that box, I think that is criminal. Well, Daniel Levy, we just have a minute, but if you could say what you think the significance of, you mentioned it earlier, uh, dissent within the Israeli war cabinet, however minor, and popular opposition to the war continuing, to what extent that might actually make a difference with respect to the negotiations and what Israel is willing to concede? 
Very important, Nimi. So first of all, you do have a camp inside Israel that is anti-apartheid, anti-occupation amongst uh, Jewish Israelis who do see a different future. And Israelis will ultimately need a landing place in which they have a future and a home, just not at the expense of Palestinians. You have a different camp. That's not that camp. You have a parliamentary, a political and a much larger camp, which was against Netanyahu in that huge protest movement before October 7th, which continues not to trust Netanyahu, which believes that the release of the hostages should be a priority and which, as was expressed by one of the ministers, Gaddy Eisenkot, who lost a son in this war, believes that the goal that you can totally decimate Hamas is not realizable and that Israel, he didn't use this language, I will, should cut its losses. So you do have strong internal pressure. Unfortunately, that is not enough yet to drive an end to this war. And it's not being matched by the kind of external pressure we should be seeing from the U.S. administration. Well, thank you so much, Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and a former Israeli peace negotiator under Prime Ministers Ehud Barak and Itzhak Rabin. When we come back, journalist Jeremy Scahill on Netanyahu's War on Truth. Stay with us. Drink Before the War by Sinead O'Connor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. A key Israeli intelligence document used by over a dozen countries, including the United States, to justify defunding UNRWA, the primary aid group for Palestinian refugees, contains no evidence to back up Israel's claims, according to several news reports. The allegations made in the Israeli document include accusations that several UNRWA employees participated in the Hamas attack on October 7th. Britain's Channel 4 obtained the document and found that it, quote, provides no evidence to support its explosive new claim that UNRWA staff were involved with terror attacks on Israel. The Financial Times, which also reviewed the materials, came to the same conclusion as did Sky News. Now, the aid agency, which is critical to providing humanitarian support in Gaza, says it will run out of funds by March as a result of the funding cuts. The allegations made by Israel are just the latest in what journalist Jeremy Scahill calls, quote, Israel's information warfare campaign, which is aimed at, quote, flooding the public discourse with a stream of false, unsubstantiated and unverifiable allegations. 
In his latest article published today in The Intercept, Scahill writes, quote, Nearly every week, sometimes every day, the Israeli government and military have unloaded a fresh barrage of allegations intended to justify the ongoing slaughter. He adds, quote, the tactic is effective, particularly because the U.S. and other major allies have consistently laundered Israel's unverified allegations as evidence of the righteousness of the cause. Jeremy Scahill is a senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept. His latest article is headlined Netanyahu's War on Truth, Israel's Ruthless Propaganda Campaign to Dehumanize Palestinians. He joins us now from Germany. Uh, Jeremy, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you could just begin by laying out the case that you make in your latest piece. Well, in the early morning hours of October 7th, uh, Members of Hamas from the Qassam Brigades, the Nukba, their elite uh, special forces, as well as uh, members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, led a multi-pronged attack in Israel. Everyone is familiar with this. And the initial targets that they hit uh, constituted uh, almost the entirety of Israel's infrastructure in what Tel Aviv calls the Gaza envelope. Um, and they were able to actually quite swiftly overpower the Gaza Division, the main entity of the Israeli state uh, responsible for enforcing the prison conditions of the people of Gaza, uh, for carrying out drone strikes, for waging war, uh, for conducting all manner of warfare against the people of Gaza. Um, and then the uh, the militant uh, Palestinian fighters made their way into a series of uh, settlements in the area. And uh, the intent was quite clear. They were trying to take hostages um, captive so that they could negotiate the release of their own prisoners. But what they did on that day was nothing short of shattering uh, the paradigm uh, of uh, sending a message that uh, the big lie uh, that is promoted by Israel, not just under Netanyahu, but certainly under Netanyahu, uh, that Israelis could somehow live in peace, a stone's throw away from what is effectively a concentration camp filled with 2.3 million people that are deprived anything vaguely resembling uh, a human existence, that that is uh, tenable. And Israel was, uh, by all accounts, caught off guard, despite the fact that its own intelligence analysts had been warning that it appeared that Hamas was uh, preparing and training for something that was quite spectacular and not simply some uh, small one-off uh, attempts to uh, fire rockets or uh, even do a minor incursion into Israeli territory. And uh, by all accounts, um, those were overlooked and dismissed. Um, and what we saw happen then as the Palestinian fighters made their way across these various Israeli communities and overtook the Gaza division and, and took many, many military personnel uh, prisoner and brought them back to Gaza, uh, was the Israeli government um, engaged in sustained uh, counteraction, um, including with Apache attack helicopters, with drones, uh, when the military did finally arrive in some of these communities. And mind you, uh, the, it, it was hours and hours before um, any official Israeli security forces were responding to some of these civilian um, areas. Uh, they engaged in uh, widespread firefights um, uh, at, at Kibbutz Biri. We know that uh, eyewitnesses have said that uh, Israeli forces shelled the house, uh, likely killing at least a dozen uh, Israelis who were being held captive by Palestinian fighters. Um, and so the Israeli government uh, then was reeling from the shock of having these crucial military bases overrun, communities uh, being flooded with Palestinian fighters. Um, and within hours of uh, these attacks happening, 
the Netanyahu government began to craft a uh, a very deliberate propaganda campaign to sell the United States, uh, other Western leaders, and the global public on a scorched earth war of annihilation against Gaza. And this campaign kicked into such high gear uh, immediately. And what they did, what was central to this, is that the Israelis began um, showing uh, President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, uh, the heads of state of NATO countries and other Western nations, um, images and videos uh, that they then proceeded to tell an unverified story about what they depicted. And the characterization from Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant was that um, this was uh, the, the greatest act of violence against Jewish people since the Holocaust, uh, that the tactics that Hamas used um, included rape, beheading of babies, uh, mutilation of bodies, torture of families, the bounding of children in groups, including in a nursery in one of the kibbutzes, and then engaging in mass execution of small children, setting children um, on fire. And uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and many uh, Western leaders then started to repeat these claims. Um, but what happened is that when Israeli Social Security uh, Agency began to actually document uh, the deaths on uh, October 11th, they documented uh, 1,139 deaths, um, 695 of them were civilians, and we started reviewing the public documentation of the deaths. Um, it turns out that there was only one infant that was killed uh, in all of the attacks combined on October 7th, the nine-month-old baby uh, named Mila Cohen, and she was hit by a bullet uh, during gunfire um, while she was in her mother's arm. Um, there were also, I think there were 36 uh, children um, under the age of 19 that died that day. Uh, 14 of them were actually killed in Hamas rocket attacks. So when, when journalists started actually looking then at the official uh, death toll, and you can go, the Israelis have published the stories, the photos of many, many, many of the victims, you realize that these were all lies. It was a massive fraud that was perpetrated uh, on the world, particularly this business about mass uh, decapitation of babies. And Joe Biden, on numerous occasions, um, said that he saw actual photographic evidence of the beheading of babies and the bounding and burning alive with kerosene whole families. And what I discovered in my research was that um, these stories appear to have ended up in the heads of Biden and Blinken and others um, based on the totally fraudulent version of events uh, on October 7th that was offered by private Orthodox uh, rescue operations, uh, the most famous of them is Zaka, um, telling stories, uh, uh, you know, about a pregnant woman who had a, a, her, a fetus cut out of her body, and then the fetus was decapitated in front of the woman and her two children. There's no evidence whatsoever to, 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 to indicate that that happened. In fact, there's no documentation that any pregnant woman died on October 7th. There was one pregnant woman who was shot while in her car on the way to deliver her baby. She was a Bedouin woman, and the doctors uh, were able to save her life. Um, they tried to deliver the baby. The baby died some hours later. But that wasn't Hamas cutting a baby out of a stomach. And yet um, these uh, lies were, were sold, and some of the most obscene uh, things that Israel said that we now know are false were repeated by um, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, in testimony in front of the Senate by Joe Biden himself. And this has gone on and on and on. I've just given you a couple of the most uh, graphic um, examples of this. But what's clear is that the Israeli government 
understood that they needed to sell this as like the worst crime against humanity in modern times in order to justify a long planned siege of Gaza that Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, he represents the most extreme and violent version of the Israeli state project. And it's very, very clear that they sold this fraud and the White House laundered it. And that's why we've seen, and I think 27,000 people killed in Gaza is a conservative estimate. I think it's much greater than that because there's an estimated seven or 8,000 Palestinians missing, many of them uh, in graves that, that that are the rubble of their former home. So th- this is one of the most epic frauds in modern history, reminiscent of the lies told to justify the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Hmm. Jeremy, I'm wondering if we can jump for a moment to the beginning of this segment um, from October 7th to the UNRWA story um, that uh, something like what the Israeli government was alleging 12 and then that number got larger members of um, uh, UNRWA, which has something like 13,000 workers in Gaza, were involved with the October 7th attack. Talk about if you will, the way you do in your piece, take a part as Channel 4 did, as a number of news organizations mm-hmm. have, uh, the evidence for this that has been used by now almost 20 countries to defund this essential organization that supports the hospitals and the schools of Gaza for over 2 million people. Well, uh, UNRWA is nothing short of the most important humanitarian organization operating in Gaza. In fact, it was explicitly established in 1949 um, during the Nakba, where uh, 750,000 plus Palestinians were forced uh, from their homes um, in an uh, extermination annihilation campaign uh, that, that then paved the way for the establishment of the state of Israel in the aftermath of World War II. And the mandate of UNRWA was to uh, care for those Palestinians and ensure that their right of return to their homes and land was going to be uh, protected. And so the Israeli government, certainly under Netanyahu, but under other uh, heads of state as well, um, has always wanted UNRWA eliminated because this represents a very serious problem uh, for the Israeli agenda of um, eliminating Palestinian territory in its entirety. Um, so just to give that context, but then the Israelis decide that immediately after the International Court of Justice rules in favor of South Africa and orders provisional measures that include the prevention of genocidal acts, uh, the stopping of killing Palestinians that the court uh, recognized as a protected group, and to allow uh, with immediate effect um, the entry of aid sufficient to confront the humanitarian catastrophe caused by the Israeli war on Gaza, the Israelis then choose to, to open a new front and just blast the public and the ears of Western leaders with a propaganda campaign aimed at trying to get them to join the crusade to eliminate UNRWA. And Israel then prepared what it called an intelligence dossier, um, alleging that 12 uh, employees of UNRWA, it has 13,000 or so employees in Gaza, 30,000 employees spread out across the Middle East where Palestinian displaced Palestinians reside. Um, and and the, the response from the Biden administration 
was to immediately announce it was suspending a, uh, uh, all funding to UNRWA. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken admitted publicly that uh, the United States had not even done its own review uh, or investigation of these assertions that 12 members of a 30,000-member organization um, had some link uh, to the October 7th attacks. And then what happened, and this is so reminiscent of Judy Miller, the New York Times, the Mushroom Cloud, Dick Cheney, uh, build up to the war in Iraq. Iraq, they go to the Wall Street Journal, and the Israelis provide the Wall Street Journal with what the journal then advertises as a dossier, an intelligence dossier. And they go further than the 12. They say that a full 10% of UNRWA's Gaza staff, 1,200 employees, are connected to, to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And they say this is not just a few bad apples. Well, this laundering of Israeli uh, propaganda uh, in the form of, a, of an article for a major American newspaper was the lead author of that article was uh, Carrie Keller Lynn. She's a new contributor to the Wall Street Journal. I started digging into who is this person because she didn't have a full bio on the Wall Street Journal website. Well, it turns out that she is a veteran of the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, she is what uh, was a militant opponent of the boycott, divest sanctions movement when she was at university in the United States. Um, and she uh, her close friend, who she did a joint interview with uh, for an organization that takes American uh, grad students to Israel. Um, she credits her with during the 2009 Gaza war, creating the social media strategy for the Israeli defense forces. This is the reporter that was the lead journalist writing this UNRWA story for the Wall Street Journal. And once we started to draw attention to that and put photos of her in her IDF uniform and talking about her ties to someone she said helped create the social media strategy for the IDF during a previous war in Gaza, um, then these organizations she was affiliated with scrubbed uh, all of these articles and photos from the internet. Uh, the journalist locked her Twitter account. Um, but this was very, very clearly a sophisticated propaganda campaign where they knew which journalists to go to, they knew which governments would buy into it, and what they got is the Biden administration now being actively complicit in, in, in violating the orders of the International Court of Justice, which has Israel under watch for potential plausible genocidal actions in Gaza. Finally, Jeremy, do you think on the October 7th um, um, investigation that it wasn't simply enough for Israel to say, over a thousand Israelis and other people, large majority of them civilian, were killed in the Hamas attack. Uh, was not enough of uh, justification to go into Israel and then multiply that over twenty-seven thousand times, uh, twenty-seven times to more than twenty-seven thousand dead today. The, the 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 Israelis, particularly the civilians who were killed that day, deserve the truth about what happened. Um, it, the, the Israeli uh, government responded with very heavy firepower. There's indications that the Hannibal Directive may have been uh, invoked, which says that um, it, it, it's better to injure and possibly even kill Israelis than let them be taken hostage. Um, they also made sweeping allegations about um, sexual violence being systematically committed by Hamas, um, that they have provided no proof that such a systematic campaign took place. The victims in Israel deserve the truth. And the 30,000 plus Palestinians who have been murdered with American bombs, whose 
deaths have been justified by the killing of those Israelis, possibly including by their own government. They also deserve I'm, the Jeremy, truth I'm and afraid, they deserve I'm justice. sorry, we're going to have to leave it there. Jeremy Scahill, senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept. His latest piece out today, Netanyahu's War on Truth, Israel's ruthless propaganda campaign to dehumanize Palestinians. And that does it for the show. I'm Nermeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.